0: As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, bacon and ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Davis steps under center. Gibson and McClendon behind him Davis with motion by Richard will get the ball to McClendon. He le- Oh, he doesn't get in He fumbled the football. Snap, spot, kick away, high enough, long enough. It's good! It's good! Carolina has won the game on a 42-yard field goal by freshman Potter Good gosh, dirty. This is the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. Big-heads. Hey guys, and welcome into this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. It is the final edition of the 2019 season. This is the last time that we will officially touch on On all things 2019 as we welcome you in to the awards edition of the show. Of course, we did the mid-season awards uh, uh, in the middle of the season during the bye week. And uh, now we circle back around and we'll do the postseason awards. A lot of the same awards uh, with a couple more sprinkled in there for you guys. So it should be a very interesting show. And along to uh, carry me and uh, you guys through this all will be Josh Marlowe. Buddy, how's it going? And uh, I think it's uh, it's finally time to wrap up this 2019 season and officially start what will be the Heel Tough blog, Sam Howell for Heisman hype train that will be going on for the 2020 offseason.
1: I'm just glad it took you to episode 142 to realize that I A, do in fact carry not only you but this podcast I am a direct reflection of all of the great reviews that we get. Considering
0: you didn't start on the podcast as the original co-host, we will say that you are the one that carries the show. I guess so. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. We'll uh, go with
1: that. Yeah, totally excited about finishing up 2019. You have heard me talk at length about the excitement level for 2020, where I think Carolina is going to be a team that's preseason ranked. They're going to be the sexy pick if there is one to get by Clemson in the ACC. Firm believer that Sam Heisman should be a sleeper for the Heisman Trophy. Sam Heisman. Sam Heisman. like Wow, that. you just went. You so, just went.
0: Was that planned or no? Did that I just. I, oh, there we go.
1: That was a miss. A miss. Sam Heisman. But uh, that that's where How I'm about at. It? And uh, it's it's 2020 is going to be a really the 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 off is going to be a fun year for us because we're going to have a lot of. A lot of good stuff to talk about because there's going to be a lot of hype around Carolina football. Should we address
0: your corny-ass joke at the end of our last episode, the final edition of the year of 2019? Or should we just let you mosey on with the dad jokes? Because you are apparently a 24-year-old who has a 35, 40-year-old man inside of him uh, and just wants to make these dad jokes because uh, it was pretty bad and, I mean well, first uh, I feel off, like we need to address this
1: first off I'm 23. um oh well there you go so you got my age wrong and after 12 years of friendship that should have already been you know, I got
0: my age wrong too then
1: um but that's, I thought I problem. thought it was great I'm I was able track. to uh to slip it in there I was waiting to time it just right and you gave me a perfect window and like Sam how I was able to fit it in there and uh yes I I'm a firm believer in dad jokes. And I am ready to one day become a dad so I can tell my kids these horrible jokes. My little brother told me that if I said these jokes on air, like at ESPN 730 Y I interned at, that he'd fire me. So that just shows that's you that not bad even my little brother is a fan he, of the dad he, he's jokes. He's what, 11? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad that he doesn't even find them funny. So I don't think
0: our audience is going to find them funny. We're asking for reviews, and look, we don't want them to throw you under the bus and just basically... Call it how they see it, that the dad jokes are terrible. So I just thought we'd throw that out there and give you a little awareness for that. But um, So so when we say uh, worst co-host, we will go with you as the worst co-host of the year of the two for that dad joke. Congratulations, you've earned that award. Uh, we'll go and dive into the rest of the real awards that we're going to hand out here. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have trophies to give the guys. Uh, so if we're working on are, that next year. If they are listening, uh, we do not have trophies to Probably give. Probably an NCAA violation. That is true. Uh, we may be able to send you a piece of paper. It may or may not be written in colored pencil. Just hang it up on your refrigerator like you would your child's uh, drawing in school. We'd greatly appreciate that. Um, But we're, we're happy to go through these because there are some really exciting awards. So we'll start with two that kind of focus on the team as a whole. Don't focus on specific players or coaches or anything like that. And we'll start with the best game of the season. Now, we've had two responses so far. And both of the responses from fans have been games that were blowouts. So... I think that this is one that can be interpretive in in, in two different ways. Is this, I guess it's kind of how you see it. You can either pick the game where you thought Carolina played the best as a team and really just destroyed someone, or you can pick a game where Carolina played a really interesting game and found a way to pull it out. If you put a loss on the list, you're out. You're you're not allowed to listen to the podcast, plain and simple. If you say, oh, well, you know, Clemson, that was probably the best game of the season. No, that doesn't count, okay? You lost to Clemson. Come on. So, um, But I think that there are are some really good games that we could throw on here, but I'm interested to hear what, what you think and how you would interpret that. For your best game of the season.
1: I mean, the easy answer, of course, is Temple. The Military Bowl with Carolina controlled the game for 60 minutes. You could also look at NC State because the second half they were clearly the better team and ran away from the Wolfpack. I was going to mention Clemson in this discussion because you took the number one team in the country 60 minutes, but you lost as 27 point, some 27 and a half point underdogs.
0: But you lost.
1: But for me, the game for me was South Carolina. Okay. Because it was the opener, it was in Charlotte. Sam Howell was making his debut. Mac Brown's a return to the coaching sidelines, and it was everything that was against Carolina in that opener. They haven't won a an opener against a Power Five opponent, and so on. Ninety nine, yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. it was just everything that was stacked against them. You had an SEC school, a South Carolina program, which Carolina hasn't beaten in the last, I think, three games that they played them in. To, uh, that uh, my memory serves me right. And they were down 20-9, to so it was another one. Can they get it done in the fourth quarter? They made all the plays. I think that game set the tempo for the rest of the season, which although was up and down for for a little bit, I don't know if this team makes a bowl game without beating South Carolina because they have the confidence to beat Miami the next week. You don't know. I think it was just the perfect way to start year one, part two, under Mac Brown. Um, it was a game that you and I were in attendance for. That's right. We did the pregame show out at Moo and Brew. We were with our good buddy Tanner. And it was just one of those games that, like, we left the stadium. And we're always proud after Carolina got beat. or when We see Carolina get beat, which has happened a lot in our time going to see football games. But this one just felt different for me as a fan. And so that's, that's where I go. By the way, I have to correct that. It was 1997,
0: believe it or not. The last time that they had beaten a Power Five opponent in the opener, Indiana, that was the last year that Mac Brown was there. That's right. I remember that now. Uh, just a ridiculous statistic. Yeah, that's one that I had up there. Um, I think Duke has to be up there as well, just because of how everything panned out. Uh, it, of course, was a hard stopper, but for Chasserrat to get the interception, beat a Duke team that you hadn't beaten in the last three tries that you had. Uh, that I think that could be up there. Mine, I'm still gonna go with the one that I had at midseason. I think the Miami game was the best game of the season because I know that you get out to the big lead, Miami comes back. But you know, you you saw against South Carolina, this team fight back from a deficit, and you said, okay, well, you know, you got a resilient quarterback playing in his first game. You know, is he gonna be able to do it again? And you're going up against a a. a an ACC opponent in Mac Brown's return to Chapel Hill in front of a packed crowd at night. And I feel like the reason that that was the best game was because you get the comeback, you have the fourth down and 17 conversion to Toe Groves, you have the touchdown pass to Daz Newsom. And you could just tell that that game and that environment first of all, had such a huge impact on all of the recruits that were in attendance for them to see that, okay, things are changing, even though really they, I mean, we, we were just going off of what Mack Brown was telling us that things were changing at that time. You'd only played one game and there were still some things that you were like, okay, well we beat South Carolina, but how, how good is South Carolina? Now Miami didn't turn out to be great either, but I think that kind of set the tone for what, the, what, the environment in Keenan Stadium was going to be like all year. Of course, outside of the Mercer game at the end of the year against an FCS opponent, where it was raining, I, I you know that was the only environment that really struggled. But that was a game that was also sold out. So if it wasn't raining, you would think there would have been uh, close to a sellout, if not another sellout. And uh, I think that was such a huge game for Carolina uh, to come back and win the way you did, and and for Sam Howell to start his career out with two straight unbelievable come-from-behind wins uh, was just amazing. So that's the game that I go with. Um, there were a lot of people that I, I know will, will want to say Temple, NC State, Georgia Tech was another game where Carolina played really well. But uh, I think me and you kind of looked at it the same way about how we interpreted uh, what the best game was. So we'll go from the best game to the best Play of the season. And there were a lot of really good plays for Carolina this year. Um, Some of the ones that stick out, the one-handed touchdown grab in Charlotte by Deami Brown. Uh, You had the Bo Corrales touchdown in Charlotte that gave Carolina the lead. You have uh, the Daz Newsome catch that we just talked about. Uh, Toe Grove's catch on fourth down in that same game. Uh, As well as uh, just a bunch of other plays. I mean, look, Sam Howell's touchdown pass to break the single-season school record and break the single-season record for a a true freshman in college football history. I mean, there's just so many different plays that you could throw out there. But, I mean, if you got to pick one play from the season, where are you going?
1: Uh, I'm taking Chassarat's interception at the goal line against Duke to preserve that win against the Blue Devils because... How how else could you go against that play? I mean, you, you you heard from Mac Brown in the in the post game of that game that uh, Jay Bateman said that this is a play they're going to run. So Carolina was prepared for it. They made the right play after pretty much giving Duke the ball game that whole entire drive because they had multiple yeah. defensive penalties that allowed the Blue Devils to continue their march to the uh, end zone. After of course fumbling the ball. At the goal line, um, and it it kept Carolina alive for a lot of different things. It kept them alive in the race for the Coastal at that time. It kept them alive for a hunt to go to a bowl game for the first time in three years, and it secured your first win over the Blue Devils since 2016. The emotion in that stadium was something that we didn't really know how to handle because we didn't believe what we just saw, because we expected Duke to pretty much run the ball in and win the game, and we were going to walk out pretty mad. They tried to catch Carolina off guard. Chassarat made a play that just, you know, defined his breakout season. And so that's the play you got to go with.
0: Yeah, that's the one that I'm going to go with as well. I was trying to kind of avoid that, throw some other ones out there. But yeah, that seems like the obvious one because that's one of those ones that will go down in Keenum Stadium lore and will be looked back on as really the highlight of this season. I think there, some people will try to make the argument for Daz Newsome's catch, but I think just because it was in a rivalry game, it was as late as it got in the game, uh, the fact that really you would kind of, it was very similar to that Pittsburgh game a few years ago when Bug Howard makes the touchdown catch. Just earlier in, not not in that drive, but a little bit earlier in that game against Pittsburgh, you kind of felt like, okay, this game's probably over. There's not really a lot of hope left, and that was kind of how you felt in that game against Duke, like you said, especially when they got inside the red zone and they were moving the ball so quickly down the field. You were thinking, oh man, this is another one of those games that we had a chance, and somehow it slips away and we're just not able to close it out, and that wasn't the case. Carolina gets one of the best plays that you're going to see from a defensive player in this decade from Chad Surratt, and he ends up helping them get a huge victory. One that, if they don't get, they don't go to a bowl game. Let's be real honest. They probably don't win six games. Um, you're right. that they would be. It would be a four-game losing streak to Duke. Actually, I haven't won since 15, uh, the record-breaking game from Marquise Williams. That's right. Because, remember, in 16, they lose the game at Duke, a game they should have won, a game they dominated. And somehow, Duke was able to keep themselves in it all night and win. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, that that was one of those ones that kind of showed after you got off to an 0-2 start against in-state opponents and people were saying, okay, nothing's really changed against in-state opponents, it doesn't seem. That was one that kept the Tor Heels, as you said, in ACC Coastal uh, in that race, as well as in uh, hopes of a bowl game. And, you know, got a huge win that I think really built some momentum for late in the season, especially uh, in the rivalry game against NC State. I feel like they kind of looked back and said, hey man, we beat Duke, we found a way to do it, why can't we beat State? And that was a big part of why uh, they were so successful in that one. So, now we'll go to some of the more specific awards, uh, which focus on people, not just uh, players or, or, or multitudes of players. And we'll start with the coaching staff. And we'll go with who is the assistant coach of the year. I think it's pretty obvious who everybody's going to say, but uh, maybe maybe you'll surprise us with one here.
1: Uh, you got to go Jay Bateman, right? Because look at the job he did with this Carolina defense in terms of their numbers, especially in the run game. They improved by over 60 yards per game in terms of what they allowed rushing from last year to this year. One of the best improvements in all of college football um and he did it with a defense that after the pretty much the month of of September was beat up the rest of the year pretty much up until that bowl game the secondary was a unit that pretty much every week you had guys dropping like flies and he still managed to find a way to keep this defense um I guess productive in terms of making plays you look at what he did against Clemson, we didn't have a we didn't think any chance in the world we were going to slow that offense down. We thought if we were to compete with them, it was because we didn't we would we would score with them. And he held that offense to twenty one points. Clemson, of course, right. is playing for a national championship. So you just saw his ability to use strategy with lesser talent, less depth, but still keep his defense competitive. And it's why Mac Brown tabbed him as his defensive coordinator when he got hired. was, this is the guy I want. He's a guy that's rising in the coaching ranks. He showed us plenty of times throughout this year why he is that guy. I know there was plenty of people that got pretty upset with the performances back-to-back weeks against Virginia and Pittsburgh. But a lot of that was uh, because of the lack of depth at the time. Yes, And those teams had fairly good offenses that Carolina just wasn't able at the time to slow down. So... He he's a guy that you know is is going to be talked about in the years to come as the next you know head coaching candidate, and to, from the defensive side of the football, and it's going to be hard for Mac Brown to keep him in Chapel Hill for the foreseeable future. But it's kind of hard not to go with this guy, and then you'd probably give the other award, a secondary award, probably to Dre Bly. Because, I mean, the amount of corners he was juggling all year long, those two kind of go hand-in-hand with the coaching jobs they did.
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to say Jay Bateman as well. Uh, You talked about the game against Clemson that was just so well called and, and against one of the best teams in the country. I mean, look, their offense at that time... Wasn't nearly as lethal as they were in pre, you know, in the prior year, uh, or even some of the years under Deshaun Watson. They kind of got it together as the season went along, but still, I mean, you look. I mean, they, there was someone on Twitter uh, during the playoff game the other night. They asked the question, "How in the world did we slow down Travis Etienne?" And that's a brilliant question. Your answer is that Jay Bateman knew what he was doing. He game-planned for that. And, you know, not only did you shut him down, I mean, look, they had, you know, a couple of guys in the receiving core that had decent days, but it really wasn't until late. This Toriel team did a great job getting pressure on... Trevor Lawrence in that game, and you know, uh, you could say that, you know, look, some of the guys really just stepped up, but Jay Bateman had a great game plan coming into that one. The other play that you go back and look at is the one that we just talked about for best play of the year. You have got to give him credit because he was a guy that went back and had watched some of the film and saw that play ran against them when he was at Army. They had run it a couple other times too. And he told Chaz Surratt to be prepared for that at some point. And uh, when they got down near the goal line, I think he pointed that out to him when the Tar Heels came to the sideline. He made sure that he realized that, and they end up getting the interception to see what was a huge win. And the best thing about Jay Bateman is, is look, while he did come in and establish his scheme, one of the best things that Jay Bateman does, that I just don't think a lot of people really realize, unless you're really watching with close eyes, is Jay Bateman really adjusts to what, who, what and who is on the field. You noticed early in the year there was, you know, some freedom at the corner spots because you had some talented guys out there so you could run a little more zone with their guys. As they got later in the year, they had no choice but to play man defense the entire time and just hope that the guys that were out there were going to be able to hold on because, uh, you know, they, they just... They, they had to throw guys in there that really weren't all that experienced in you know all areas of the secondary. He dealt with depth about as well as he could. I mean he, he bought he had guys that bought in and played over a thousand snaps on the defensive line and at linebacker. and then one of the other things that you noticed late in the year was when we saw the corner depth get so thin, they, they really couldn't use a nickelback. He found a way to adjust what he did with Miles Dorn and Dominique Ross to still be able to take away slot receivers and not let them kill you the way that they would have been able to if he would have just kind of stuck with his system and said, we're just going to run this. So that's kind of where Jay Bateman is a little bit different. Some of these defensive coordinators, they'll come in and say, look, you have to buy into my system 100%. You have to find where you fit in my system or we're not going to use you. That's not really how Jay Bateman runs things. He'll adjust his system a little bit to be able to sort of adjust to the guys that are on the field while at the same time still keeping the same principles that he wants in place. That's why he's such a great defensive coordinator like you said. He's going to be highly heralded whether it's as a defensive coordinator by one of these bigger programs that's looking for one because their defensive coordinator has moved on to uh, the NFL or head coaching job or has possibly been fired. One of those big jobs is going to be looking at them and then there'll also be some head coaching jobs. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if the athletic department is true with what they originally said when this staff was hired. We're going to do everything in our power to make sure that we keep all of these guys in place. Um, I I think you're right. Dre Bly was the other guy that I was really thinking of because he, throughout the year, had to really just, every week, was coaching up different guys that were going to be starting for him because there were just so many injuries. And to have guys out there like DeAndre Hollins, who was really uh, pretty much an exclusive nickel corner throughout most of the offseason, to turn him into an outside corner that was serviceable, to be able to show a lot of growth uh, from... Storm Duck and help him become what he was by the end of the year really just speaks a lot to him. And then the other guy that I thought we could definitely recognize, I mean, Robert Gillespie has to be recognized as well. Because you look at the running game and how much it changed this year. Uh, great, you know. By the way, I want to say great job by Mac Brown keeping him on the staff. That was one guy that I said when they were making all the changes to the staff, they have got to keep him around because he's one, he's a great recruiter. But two, I thought he did a really good job a year ago with the guys that we had. And this year, with the guys almost fully healthy, you had some times where Javante Williams was on and off the field with injuries, but Michael Carter was able to stay fully healthy, ran for over 1,000 yards, almost 900 yards on the ground for Javante Williams. Both guys over 5.5 yards per carry. And then you had Antonio Williams, too, who filled into that third role extremely well. I think he has set this unit up to be very successful going forward and that's in large part because he is there and he is able to really push this group in the right direction and keep some of these guys bought in because Look, I mean, Antonio Williams, when he was placed further down on the depth chart, could have just been like, yeah, "I'm going to look to transfer and see if I can't find some playing time somewhere else, and you know, finish out my career the way I wanted to." He was able to, you know, keep him bought in and you know, tell him, "Look, you know, you are a third running back, but we're still going to use you." And you saw late in the year that really paid off for the Tar-Head. So So yeah, I,
1: I think he's got to be up there. He too. would have been my guy if I'd have went on the offensive side of the ball because. The running game was just drastically different from what it was last year. I know it was a different offense, and the and the running game was more prioritized, but you got Michael Carter over 1,000 yards. You had Javante Williams on pace for 1,000 yards before the injury, and Antonio Williams was a guy that when you had teams worn down in the fourth quarter, would be able to break off big runs. He found a good way to keep all three guys invested, uh, depending on their snap limit, and Found a good way to incorporate them into the running game, and all three, you know, that after the Duke game, they, I guess, were labeled the firm, and that we started pushing that that we had the best trio of backs in all of college football is what Mac Brown would say uh, in his PC. So, I'm interested to see what the how that position continues to grow under his uh, leadership. Like you said, one of the better recruiters that was already on the staff that you had to keep for the, the the recruiting class that Mac Brown was trying to bring in last year. And a really big part of Carolina's offensive success under uh, Phil Longo.
0: So Phil Longo, okay, we'll just touch on him really quick and then we'll move on from the coordinators. I mean, I don't think that he would be a lot of people's pick because I feel like a lot of people were struggling with the fact that they, they weren't scoring in the red zone for much of the season. Really picked that up late in the year. Um, but look, I mean, he still deserves some recognition for what he did. I, I mean, I don't think he's going to be anybody's going to put him as assistant coach of the year. I think that's going to go to Jay Bateman in most people's minds. But still, this offense finished averaging 33.1 a game, which is 28th out of 130 teams this year. And at the end of the season, got all the way up to averaging 474 yards per game. Had. One running back over a 1,000 yards, another running back that came within 67 yards of going over a 1,000 yards, and then you had two wide receivers that reached the 1,000-yard receiving mark the first time that the Tar Heels have ever had two receivers reach that mark in the same season. So he deserves some recognition. No, I mean, we we were very critical of him midseason for some of his play calls, and especially in the red zone, and we were justified at times because there were times where that was what was costing Carolina games, but he adjusted it late in the season, and this offense became such a great unit at the end of the year that he, he deserves to be pointed out here.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we we knew when we hired him, he was going to put up a ton of yards because that's all he's ever done. We knew that this offense would put up points to some capacity, the the red zone has got to be better if Carolina's going to take that next step as an offense. They they settled way too many times for three, and at one point we were having to go for it on fourth down because we had no confidence in the kicking game. At one right. point, that that can't that can't happen next year if you want to beat the teams that are on that schedule and you want to compete to win a, a conference title. Right. So, I, I get it because right. where the where the numbers stack up, or they're really good, but you look at the scoring and the red zone numbers, they got to improve.
0: So let's go now to the guys that were actually on the field and suited up every Saturday. And we'll start with the breakout player of the year. And this one, I think, is going to get an array of answers. There are some guys that really stepped forward this year, became a big part of this Tariel team that maybe... Weren't big parts a year ago, or if they were, they really didn't produce at the level that we thought they could. There's a couple of really good candidates here, but who do you have as your breakout player for the 2019 season?
1: I mean, you got to go Chaserat because a guy that was converting from quarterback to linebacker when he suited up against South Carolina it was the first time he's ever played linebacker. He, he hadn't done it and we saw right there on that day he had a chance to be special, and special he is. Um, He has potential to be a star player at this level, and we've even seen from various NFL guys from different scouting places that he's going to be a guy in the NFL that can really thrive with the way that the NFL game is going to as well. And, I mean, I I think that's uh, that's where you got to go because I don't think we expected this, I thought he would maybe be a rotation guy that would make some plays, maybe come in in certain third-down packages and whatnot. But he was you know, he was, he was was the defense for the better part of the year when the, the guys up front were struggling to get to the quarterback and the guys in the secondary were rotating every week with injuries. We could count on him making plays, whether it was in the run game or in the pass game, and he had big moments. He had big sacks against Clemson against, on Trevor Lawrence. Of course, interception against Duke that we talked about earlier. So, I, I mean, Chasser has to answer.
0: Uh, so I don't want to duplicate any of my answers here, which kind of gives away that Chaz Surratt is going to be one of the awards that will come up later. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use Chaz here. That's that's probably the most obvious answer. Um, another one would of course be Howell, but I, I mean let's be real honest. I don't think you can really put true freshmen up there. I know that no one really expected this from Sam Howell, but um, I'm gonna leave those two guys off. And I'm gonna go with Deami Brown. Uh, this was a guy that we thought could take a step forward when we talked about our standouts before the season, but I don't think we saw this coming from him because I don't. I, I, we thought that Daz Newsom was gonna lead the team in receiving by a lot. Um, just because of what we'd seen last year from Daz. We thought, okay, he's going to be the go-to receiver. We heard all throughout spring camp, Daz has been the guy that's been the go-to receiver. And you know, early in the season, we kind of learned pretty quickly that De'Ami Brown was the guy that we've been looking for at that outside receiver spot since Matt Collins left. He was a guy that could take the top off of the defense. But the other thing was, I mean, he, he had reliable hands and could run really good routes, and he showed that this year. Uh, led the team with 1,034 receiving yards on 51 receptions, which averages out to 20.3 yards per catch, the most since Mac Hollins back in 2015, of course. And then you have the 12 receiving touchdowns, which ties a school record with both Akeem Nix and Dwight Jones. So this guy was... Really, I mean, Carolina, if you just go back and watch, he was Carolina's best receiver for most of the season. Daz Newsome really started taking off after the halfway point of the season, but Diami Brown was that guy that week in and week out, you could trust him to make plays. And that became the guy that it seemed like, especially when you needed a pass, especially deep down the field, Sam Howell was looking for Diami Brown. And I just, I have to go with Diami over some of the other guys that are on this list because, I mean, you know, I don't think anybody saw this coming from him. And and for him to... The thing for me is to go over 1,000 yards, lead the team in receiving, and really to tie the school record in touchdowns, I think that's hard to argue. Uh, The other guys that I was thinking about here, Javante Williams has to get some love here because... This was a guy that last year was the third-string running back for most of the year, really got to play late in the year because of the injuries that they had at the running back position. And then this year, if he doesn't get injured in the game against Pittsburgh, he's probably going to finish as the team's leading rusher and reach the 1,000-yard mark, I would say. Um, So that that was another guy. Um, Some of the other ones that you you could point out, uh, Jeremiah Gimmel, 84 tackles this season, uh, 7.5 for a loss two sacks, really stepped up in the middle of that defense this year. Um, another guy that that I think deserves some, some love here uh, is Storm Duck. 37 total tackles, uh, two interceptions, and five pass deflections. You could really just see him develop as the year went along, and he's going to be expected to be a big part of next year's secondary, even with all the new guys that are coming in. You would expect him to compete hard for one of those starting corner spots, uh, potentially opposite Patrice Rene next year. Uh, or Trey Morrison, uh, one of those two guys. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what he does next year. Uh, is there anybody else that you feel we should point out here at, for, for for breakout players? Or is that really it? I thought Bo Corrales maybe a little bit. Because he uh, finished the season 575 receiving yards, six touchdowns. Really filled into that third wide receiver spot pretty well. Um, but those were those were really the guys that I pointed out.
1: There. yeah I think you touched on every guy that was really worth mentioning for that award. All right so let's go to
0: offensive MVP uh, this one kind of seems pretty obvious um but again I'm trying not to duplicate guys here so man this this is this is pretty tough right here. Who do you got at offensive MVP? I mean, you can duplicate because you you said Chad's the breakout player. I
1: was actually going to go De'Ami Brown for this answer because he became that guy on offense that whenever we needed a big play, he was who Sam Howell looked to. And it really was from the first game of the year on. He made plays against South Carolina. He made plays against Miami that allowed him to earn the trust of uh, Sam Howell. And just, just a monster year for him. Also, I mean, we, we predicted him in the preseason to be a guy that was going to break out, so i got to toot my own horn for being right about something for the first time in a long time. And we both
0: said that, so you're uh, tooting both of our horns.
1: But, out. yeah, I mean, I, I would go him because this is a guy that that going into next year is going to be a candidate to win the Blitnikoff Award, which is an award for the best receiver in, in college football. He's going to be a guy that's going to draw some All-ACC, maybe some second or third-team All-American awards in the preseason stuff because when everyone looks back at his numbers and the production that he put up, it it's, it's, it's up there with some of the younger receivers in all of college football. He'll come back for, you know, course of course, his junior year, and it figures to be a big year because this offense next year has a chance to be one of the better ones in college football.
0: So I'm going to go with a guy that finished with just a little bit more total yard production than him. I'm going to go with Michael Carter out of the guys. Uh, I mean, you look at him, just a huge step up for Mike. I mean, we were talking first two years on campus. We all remember when he first came to campus We heard the comparisons to Giovanni Bernard. He had the great game against Cal at home to begin that 2017 season and then just never really evolved from there. Kind of became that guy that, you know, we we were waiting to see him break out but just, you know, weren't seeing it just yet. He was kind of getting lost in the mix with some of the other guys that were there. This year with Jordan Brown gone to Kansas State, he was looked at as, as the guy that was going to have to really take over a, a good amount of the snaps. But a lot of people thought he was going to split him with Antonio Williams to start the season. He came out as the starter in the game against South Carolina. Really played pretty well in that game. And it kind of continued the rest of the year for him. Finished the season with 177 carries for 1,003 yards only had three rushing touchdowns. That's been one of the things with him is that really over the last two seasons, even last year, the production wasn't bad, but he just couldn't find the end zone. That's the only thing that's really a knock on him. But was really helpful in the receiving game. Had 21 catches for 154 yards and finished the season with over 1,150 yards from scrimmage. He was a huge part of what Carolina did this year. And look, if you don't have a great running game, it's not gonna be. You're not gonna be able to open up the pass game. One of the games that you look back and say, okay, if you want to see an example of why just throwing the ball over and over again isn't always the most effective, was that Virginia Tech game. They really weren't able to run the ball all that well. Sam Howell, yeah, he had a really good day through the air, but Carolina still found a way to lose that game because their offense, while it was still efficient, you didn't have that threat of the running game, especially when he got into the red zone. Michael Carter, as the year progressed, started to become more and more confident. Confident in himself, and that really paid off down the stretch, and that's the reason why he finished as as successfully as as he did, and got over the thousand yard mark. Something that at midseason we were kind of questioning if he would be able to reach there. We knew Javante Williams was going to have a real good shot, but Michael Carter. With a fantastic finish to the season, especially the final three games of the year, Uh, that's what led him to uh, such a phenomenal season, and that's what lands him as my offensive MVP. So the defensive MVP, um, I think this is going to be your your duplicate guy here. Uh, Who do you got as the MVP of the defensive side of the football for this year?
1: Yeah, it's going to be Chas because he was the heart and soul of this defense from game one. Um, you could maybe make an argument for Aaron Crawford because whenever he was active and was being a, a a guy that was making plays, his defense was very good. Right. He was very good against Clemson. Um, he was very good towards the ends of the year when you saw this defense really step up its play. But, I mean, look, Chad Chaz is the guy. I mean, I think he did lead, led the team in tackles or was second in tackles. Um, First and tackles yeah, by a mile, had, you know, forced interceptions, mm-hmm. you know, just a guy all over the field. And I mean, look, the story—I'll I, I, never, I'll never get over the fact this is a guy that we saw playing quarterback and is then playing linebacker. And I'll, I'll always think about that, right? And and so he, he's the MVP, and we're hoping and praying that he comes back to lead this defense for 2020.
0: Well, I mean, you couldn't have put it better any other way. That's that's how I see it as well. Um, I think that there's a good argument for Aaron Crawford, best interior run defender in the country according to Pro Football Focus, uh, finished with 50 total tackles, nine tackles for loss, and three sacks out of his nose tackle position. So uh, a guy that was really just a workhorse when he was on campus. And, you know, when we talked about our all-decade team in the last podcast, I put him on my all-decade team as my guy in the center of my defense because I really feel like he had that big of an impact, and that showed again this year. Um, I, you know, Chaz is, is just on a different level. You talked about it. To move from linebacker or to, from quarterback to linebacker, and this was a guy that this was not suggested by the coaching staff, he wanted to do this. He wanted to challenge himself and see if he could make it work. And I remember going all the way back to the spring. The first week that he was at practice and they said, you know, he's he's showing some positive signs, but again, he's a quarterback playing linebacker. How much can we really expect from him? And then we hear before the game against South Carolina that he's going to have to start because we're not going to have Jonathan Smith due to, uh, you know, some of the off the field issues he had in the classroom. Um, You know, he's going to be suspended. So we're going to have to put him out there. We're going to start him, and and we feel like he's shown us enough. And at that time, we were thinking one of two things. We were thinking, one, okay, we've got a former quarterback that's coming in to start the first game of the year at linebacker against an FBS team in South Carolina that people were expecting to be pretty good this year. And two, uh, we don't have any depth behind him at all. There's no sub for him, so he's pretty much your guy. you got to roll with him. We're going to have to find a way to make this work. I'm assuming that if you go back and listen to the pregame show that we did out at Moo and Brew, it would not have been uh, what we would have expected. Um, but, uh, look, I mean, he, he was phenomenal in that game. I mean, you, I remember we, we were sitting in the stands, and we just could not get over the fact of how well he played as opposed to everybody else because – Remember, that first quarter of that game against South Carolina was not our best showing defensively. There were a lot of guys that were struggling to tackle. Chad Surratt was the one guy that was showing up consistently, and that took off the rest of the year. 115 total tackles easily led the team, 34 tackles ahead of the next guy on the list, 15 tackles for loss, and and 6.5 sacks. The 15 tackles for loss led the team the six and a half sacks, finished only behind Timon Fox for the most sacks on the team. Of course, the interception, he only had one on the season, but it was the extremely important interception that we talked about earlier against Duke, and it had two pass deflections. He was a guy that just kind of did everything, and uh, I mean, if you want to watch what I thought was his best game, go back and watch that game against Clemson, where he... One of my favorite terms that everybody uses, he was playing with his hair on fire in that game because he was everywhere. And going up against one of the better offensive lines in the country, every time he blitzed, still finding ways to go in there 100 miles an hour and find ways to get after quarterback Trevor Lawrence. The other guy that I wanted to point out here that I think has an argument, but... I would give Surratt the edge over. Miles Dorn has to be talked about here because you look at all of the injuries that were suffered in the secondary. This was the guy that was your senior leader coming in anyways, him and Patrice Rene. He finished with 83 total tackles, four and a half tackles for loss, two interceptions, six pass deflections. But my thing is, he played so many different roles this year. Early in the year was that typical free safety that would occasionally come up and help you and run defense. But then as the year went on, this was a guy that literally had to transition into basically being a full-on man coverage safety at times against slot receivers because you had so many injuries that you didn't have any nickelbacks available that you could put in. He had to shift everything that he did become this guy that could cover in space and make plays on the football. And I thought he did a great job of that. It helped when Don Chapman came in because that took a little bit of the pressure off of him on the back end and allowed him to sort of focus on coming up in the box, taking away the run, uh, which he was a little bit better at than I thought Don was early on in his career. Don, I think, will eventually get there. But uh, Miles Dorn was just a do-everything type of guy and really deserves to be pointed out and, and get some recognition for what he did this year for this tournament. Defense. So we'll finish it up with our overall MVP for the 2019 season, and I'm pretty sure that we have got the same guy. He has already collected some hardware from the ACC, and we will not be able to send him some hardware here, but if we were able to, he would be collecting the biggest trophy, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, the MVP for this football team, Sam Howell. And it's, I mean, there's there's not close, and then there's whatever you want to call this. Um, what he did... Severe landslide. As a true freshman, blew everyone's expectations out of the water. We thought he was going to come in and be productive and give Carolina a chance to make a bowl game. Don't think we saw him breaking a numerous records for freshman production. Um, this is a guy that kept or had Carolina in the running to win a Coastal Championship late into November, and it was solely because of his arm. Because I mean, you throw for well over thirty touchdowns. He wasn't making freshman mistakes in terms of interceptions. Went toe to toe with Trevor Lawrence in the in the in a, the end of September. Brought Carolina back against South Carolina and Miami with big-time plays on fourth down in both of those games. I mean, the kid, you know, just shows that he's got the it factor. He's got moxie. He's got poise. Nothing phases him. Um, you know, and I I could go on about the, the, the praises. Just getting started, yeah. That I can, I can say about slinging Sammy Howell. I mean, I already called him Sam Heisman earlier in the show. So I, I'm a firm believer that he deserves to be a candidate for that prestigious award for the rest of the time. He's a, a, a member of Carolina football, and it's just, man, I don't know. He was he was so much fun to watch week in, week out, making ridiculous throw after unridiculous throw. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, already got some All-ACC awards. He'll probably get some awards from the team Bakel whenever that happens after the end of the year, so... Yeah, Sam Howell, Tar Football MVP. So, I want to take us
0: back to when we were sitting in Bank of America Stadium, and one of our, one of our fellow friends, we like to make fun of him because he, he changes teams. He's a generally goofy guy all the time. He said to us, you know, this guy, in the middle of the game, joking, this guy's the best quarterback in school history. This guy could win the Heisman Trophy. And we were like, okay, man, let's, let's relax, okay? It's one game. Okay, Sam Howell legitimately, like this is the thing, we will be legitimately talking about Carolina having a Heisman contender on this podcast for the first time ever. And I mean, let's go back and look through the history of Carolina. Who legitimately had a shot to win a Heisman trophy? Charlie Justice, you could make the argument for. There were some people that Amos Lawrence got some talk, but never really was able to get up there high in the rankings. Dre Bly was a serious contender at one time. And then Julius Peppers. But let's be honest, I mean, Dre Bly, Julius Peppers, two defensive players. They weren't going to win the award. Sam Howell has a legitimate chance. He plays the position that you need to to win the Heisman Trophy. And he did all of this in his first year on campus. I mean, you look at All of the statistics, 3,641 yards passing, second in school history, trailing only Mitch Trubisky from the 2016 season. His 38 passing touchdowns, easily the most in school history, easily the most among true freshman quarterbacks in NCAA history. And I believe he actually did set the freshman record with 38 uh, in the bowl game. He ends up tying the regular season record for a quarterback with Jameis Winston during his Heisman season with 38 for ACC quarterbacks, unfortunately finishes third amongst all ACC quarterbacks in touchdown passes in a season, but that's only because Deshaun Watson and Jameis Winston both played in more games than him due to the fact that their teams were in the college football playoff. Now again, can't blame them for being in the college football playoff. They, they had better teams around them and were able to win more games. But still, what he did was just amazing. The biggest thing for me, though, when it comes to Sam, was if you look back into the most important games of the season, what did he do that we just hadn't seen from quarterbacks the last few years? He did not turn the ball over in crucial moments. He was a true freshman. There were, I mean, let's be honest. We can probably count on one hand times where we said to ourselves, ooh, yeah, I don't know about that decision there. Like that, he is he is so far advanced in his decision-making as a quarterback. And that's just from the amount of film study that he puts in. And we've heard this from the coaching staff. He's a, he's a film junkie. He's a guy that is always wanting to get better. He's a guy that... Love When you talk about it, you, we were talking about this the other day. When you talk about guys that love football, Sam Howell loves football. There is no doubt in my mind about that. And that's why he is as successful as he is. It's only going to go up from here, you would hope. Uh, it's going to be tough to duplicate those numbers next year, but if there's a guy that can do it, it would seem like Sam Howell's got that mindset to do so. And he is pretty much the cornerstone of this team for the next few seasons. You got him this year. And okay, as you scroll through Facebook, like you shouldn't be doing. That's right, as always. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about a guy that you know, we we've talked about program changers before. This was a team that was two and nine a year ago. If Sam Howell is on this team, there's no way this team finishes seven and six.
1: Yeah, no, not even close. That's why when Mac Brown was hired, the most important job he had was flipping his recruitment or commitment from Florida State to Carolina. And did it in a week. Yeah, did it in a week. From and, when he
0: hired Phil Longo. Amazing. Um,
1: and it's something that when we look back on Mac Brown's second stint here at, at Carolina, we're going to look back at that decision as why Carolina got to where they are going in the future. Because it only takes one guy to, to change, change everything. And Sam Howell, is he's that guy. Um, Unless something just happens and he doesn't get better or something like that, this guy is going to break probably every passing record in the history of the program. Right. Um, He's going to threaten some ACC records in only three years because of how much he did already as a freshman. And that's us
0: just thinking that he's definitely going to go to the NFL as a junior. Again, there's no guarantee because we've seen guys that have said, no, I'm going to stay another year. It depends on what, what what the draft looks like the year he's coming out, where they're going to project him. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is, I mean, you look already, if you just project ahead, I mean, this guy could smash some records. I mean, look, passing touchdowns, believe it or not, he is already within 30 of the program record. If he duplicates this year, he'll break the program record in two years. That is ridiculous to think that you can have a guy that would be that productive that quickly. And I mean, here's the thing. Not only is it us that is seeing this, you've had guys all throughout the season that played quarterback here. Bren Renner made comments on social media about how great Sam Howell was. Marquise Williams always on social media saying how special he was. So you're seeing it from guys that have been around the program. They can tell you right now that this is a next level guy and that you know, he's. It, it would only seem as if he's going to get better going forward. And we're going to learn a lot about him real quick next year. When you go and face what would we would think would be Mackenzie Milton and Central Florida, although they might go with Dylan Gabriel, who had a good year. And then the game that I think we're all wanting to see between him and Bo Nix. That's going to be a brilliant one in Atlanta. So, uh, it's going to be fun. The 2020 Sammy Heisman campaign will begin on. Uh, Right here on the Heel Tough blog, we're gonna be uh, we're, we're gonna be pushing that all off season uh, whenever we talk about the team uh, in 2020. So uh, we're, we're excited about that. One of the other things that I wanted to do on this podcast, just really quickly, is look back at some of our guys that we had as breakout performers. For this season, I know you don't have your list because, as always, unprepared
1: for the show. That wasn't on the rundown. Of that the was on.
0: That was literally on the rundown through multiple times that we had discussed it on other podcasts. But sure, but sure. So, um, we both had Deami Brown. We've rang the bell on that. Uh, a guy that tied a single season record for touchdowns in a, in, in a single season by a wide receiver. Uh, of course, uh, led the team in receiving. We kind of all knew that. But uh, I had Jeremiah Gimmel on there. I believe you had Gimmel on there as well. Uh, we, we were pretty spot on about that one too. Played and started every game for the Tar Heels in the middle of their defense. Finished as the second leading tackler on the team. Really took a huge step this year. I had Jordan Tucker on my list. Uh, he had a fantastic season opposite of Charlie Heck at right tackle. Um, what was pretty much what we expected him to be this season. And, uh, I thought for the most part, did a pretty good job is only going to progress next year. May end up being the guy that will have to take over for Charlie at left tackle. Uh, I had DJ Ford on the list, which he ended up getting benched later in the season, but really did have a pretty solid year. 54 total tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, had an interception in the game against Georgia tech and two pass deflections. Um, you know, became a pretty big guy as as both a rotational safety and at times rotating in at nickelback. Uh, was was really a nickel early in the year and then had to move to safety pretty much full time after the injuries to both Miles Wolfolk and then uh, Cameron Kelly in consecutive games. So he ended up taking over as the starter at uh, strong safety and eventually was replaced by Don Chapman uh, mainly because Don Chapman is just a really really good player. And then the other guy, this is the one reason that I wanted to do this because. I'm I thought, you know, there there were some guys on the list that were, were pretty bold and that ended up working out. There were also some guys on the list that were pretty bold that didn't end up working out. Chris Collins is my one that did not end up working out. The outside linebacker who played... A pretty decent role a year ago as a rotational guy in 2018. Played a grand total of zero defensive snaps this year on the, uh, for the Tar Heels defense. Uh, I expected that he would be used at the rush linebacker position. He was, in fact, not used at the rush linebacker position. Did not see any time on the field. Unless I am mistaken, I did not see him on special teams either. So that was a humongous swing and a miss. But uh, everyone else relatively decent relatively decent so uh, I think that we can when we look back on that article later on down the line we will brag about the fact that we said that Deami Brown and Jeremiah Gimma were both going to have big seasons so there we go yeah Yours, I'm pretty sure, by the way, you made yours up on the fly in the middle of the episode of the podcast when we did it. Because, again, as usual, coming unprepared. Came unprepared. There you go. So that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Heel Tough blog podcast. Uh, we'll head it out with the forty-yard dash, which is just where we take a look at some of the storylines around Carolina football. Dez Evans and Miles Murphy, two guys that were early signees in the two thousand twenty class, they are set to participate in the Under Armour All American Game tomorrow night down in Orlando, Florida. They have been practicing for the entire week. Both guys uh, really haven't received much of the run from the guys that have been out there, but uh, still have, have had some moments. where where they've been spotlighted. Miles Murphy a little bit more, believe it or not, than Dez Evans. Uh, but still, guys that really should have pretty good impacts at Carolina. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on them. I'm really interested to see what Dez Evans can do because the focus is really not on him down there. It's on some of the other big names down there. So maybe he's able to jump out and have a good game. That, of course, tomorrow night on ESPN. As for Josh Downs, Clyde Pinder, and Jaquarius Conley, they are participating in the Army All-American Bowl, which will take place on Saturday at 1 o'clock from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. They have been down there uh, for most of the week as well, practicing. Today was day two of the practices. Uh, Josh Downs really has been the big guy that they've been talking about, a wide receiver amongst all the guys out there. Really have liked his route running. He's been catching everything from a great group of quarterbacks that are out there as well. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to see what he can do in the game. Clyde Pinder has really sort of jumped off the page at some of the people out there. Again, he's a three-star guy according to 24-7 Sports. And he's down there with some really, really talented guys. Brian Breeze, the number one player in the entire country and the number one defensive end. He's had a huge showing down there. Clyde Pinder's been another one that they've really been talking about, though. So amongst a group of defensive linemen that they are expecting to be superstars in this 2020 class, Clyde Pinder is making a name for himself Uh, as one of the guys at defensive tackle. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do in the game on Saturday. And then as for Jaquarius Conley, haven't heard a ton from him so far during this week of practice, but they haven't really been focusing on the defensive backs. A lot of focus on the offensive skill players and the offensive and defensive linemen because they've been doing a lot of trench drills. So I don't think that it's really that maybe Jaquarius hasn't been playing all that well there, hasn't been showing well. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what he does, though on a big stage as he really shined at the Shrine Bowl down in Spartanburg a couple of weeks ago. Now we'll be able to see him again uh, amongst some of the best players in the country, and we'll see how they will perform in the game. Keep an eye out for all three of those guys. Again, that one will be on Saturday at 1 p.m. on NBC. Uh, the other news that we wanted to tell you about, of course, uh, we did tell you this in the last podcast. But we wanted to make sure you didn't miss it in case you missed the All-Decade podcast. Carl Tucker and Greg Ross. Both of those guys are officially in the transfer portal. Carl Tucker received the extra year of eligibility and will use that to head elsewhere. As for Greg Ross, we knew uh, when he was out there with the guys on senior day that he was going to graduate early. We just didn't know as to whether or not he was going to decide to step away from football and just move on or if he was going to look to transfer. He will look to transfer and will look to play his senior year. Uh, So both guys will not be with the Tar Heels next year, but we wish them the best of luck. So that does it for this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. Make sure you go and check out all of the old editions of the podcast, including the one we did just before this, the All-Decade Team. That was a really fun one where we go back and give you our, uh, our complete all-decade team from the offensive players to the defensive players, even the special teams players. We give you our first team nominees for that. And uh, there are some really good discussions that we have in that edition of the podcast. So make sure you guys go back, check that out. Uh, it was a really fun edition, so I think you guys will really like that. Also, make sure that you give us uh, the guys that you think uh, should win these awards and your all-decade teams. You can submit those uh, to us on facebook uh heel tough blog facebook page uh, just search facebook.com slash heel blog make sure you like and follow the page there as well so that you can keep up with everything that you are doing or go to the twitter page at heel blog on twitter you can submit those, and that's where you can find all the articles and podcasts as well. Healtoughblog.com is loaded right now with plenty of content covering the basketball team. Of course, Tar has got another win against Yale the other night, so that means that they are on a two-game winning streak. Uh, granted, that's not really supposed to be something that we're bragging about, but this team is starting to gain just a little bit of momentum, and we're going to be covering them as they head into ACC play now, so make sure you guys check that out. On the football side of things, we have the article up there, Breaking down. Down Carl Tucker and Greg Ross's decisions to transfer, as well as the all decade team in there as well. You have the article that goes first, second, and third team guys on there. It's a real in-depth article, real good trip down memory lane. So make sure you guys go and check that out as well. And of course, if you want to go back, we have the temple recap, temple stock report, as well as the temple trench report. So Uh, That will do it. We are heading into off-season mode on the podcast as well as the blog. Still plenty of stuff that will be up there for you guys. We want to thank you guys for hanging around with us during the 2019 season. It's been a really fun season, and we are extremely excited about what 2020 holds for these North Carolina Tar Heels. So thank you once again for listening, and as always, go Tar Heels!